All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn this morning to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. On Sunday morning for 10 months, we've been going through, walking through the book of Revelation together, spending a lot of time considering what's going to happen next, what's going to happen in the future. But I think once you take that much time to look at a book like Revelation, afterwards it's important just to take a step back and reflect upon what you have learned. And to ask yourself, in light of what we have just been taught, what would God have us to do now, here, today? And that's the question we are going to look to answer over the next couple of weeks, by looking at passages that I believe specifically address last day believers, which we are. I believe we are living in the last days. And I'd like to bring your attention to 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Notice what Peter writes. He says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and in godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Over the last several months since August, I've been seeing newspaper headlines that look like this. Americans are exhausting their savings, excess savings, and could out, run out of funds this quarter, the third quarter, the Fed study says. Since August, that has only gotten worse where people now are burning through their savings trying to compensate for the inflation that we're experiencing. People are now going one step farther and taking money out of their 401ks. They're taking money out of their retirement plans, their IRAs. They're taking away from their future to support themselves in the present. And one person said it this way, I know that I'm taking from my future to pay for my uh, needs now, but I'm in my 50s, so what am I to do now? How can I regain and recoup that money? I wish Christians would take a moment to consider just that question, but from a biblical perspective. I wish we would take a moment to consider how we are spending the present in regards to the future. And what impact will the decisions that I make today have upon my future in eternity? And it is that question that I want to consider for a moment. I believe that is what Peter is alluding to in verses 11 and 12 of our text this morning. 
What type of person ought we to be? And let us begin by answering that question this morning. And let's do so by looking at the bookends of this particular section of text, verses 10 and verses 13. In verse 10, But the day of the Lord, that is His return, will come as a thief in the night. We don't know when it is. Anybody gives you a date, be certain of this, it's not going to happen on that date. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. The very first consideration that I must take into, into mind before I make decisions, before I live my life today, is the fact that where I live, here and now, this world as I know it, all of this is framed contextually in temporarity. It is just a, fe- a moving moment in time. This is not the total reality in which I live in today. So how am I investing my life? What am I doing with the new life that Jesus Christ has given me? How am I spending that? What am I focusing upon, etc.? It's important that we realize that everything around us, the world as we know it, is passing away. That everything is temporary in nature. So therefore, how should we interact with the temporary nature of the world around us? Why? Because notice verse 13. Nevertheless, we according to his promise look for the new heavens and the new earth, which righteousness dwells. This is the finality. This is our eternal existence. This is what we are living for in the moment. And yet, so many of us are living today as if eternity is never going to come. The number of Americans that are ill-prepared for their retirement is astonishing. It's amazing to me that they haven't thought about a time in which they are incapable of working. It's going to happen to all of us, trust me. Oh, not just simply retiring because we no longer want to work, but maybe physically we're incapable of working. And yet we are not preparing for that moment. Well, Christians, we are not preparing for eternity. We are not considering how we are spending the moment and how that expenditure is going to reverberate through all of eternity. We are living for ourselves. We are living for today. We are living for our temporal comforts. We are looking to these things as the highest priority of necessity, and we seem to be disregarding eternity. Now, I'm not saying this to judge you. I'm saying this so we can gain clarity and sobriety when it comes to our future. Hey, I never thought I would be 55. I never thought that. I thought I, had, I was going to be lucky if I got past 30, okay? But I'm 55 today. And as a result, I can't believe that this much time has passed and things have gone by so fast. 
But how much is just 80? How much is just 85, 90 years in comparison to eternity? And yet we seem to have little regard. Well, when I die, I'm going to get to heaven. I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to be with Jesus. But do you know the Bible speaks a lot of our responsibilities here and now to prepare for that moment? To hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Do you know the Bible talks a lot about how we enter into heaven? And just because I graduated high school by the skin of my teeth, it is not my desire to enter into heaven by the skin of my teeth. I am so thankful they graded on a curve. Oh, it wasn't that I was stupid. I just didn't apply myself. There were always more important things to do than homework. And I found every single one of them. <laughs> but what about eternity? The Bible speaks a lot about it. Notice with me, that's exactly what Peter is trying to frame for us. That this world is temporal that we look forward to eternity. And in the midst of that, he asks us the question of what manner of persons ought we to be here and now. Let me give you a couple of verses to really think about as we enter in this. Keep these in the back of your mind as we go through this together this morning. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, notice what he says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, where the government takes it in taxes. No, that's my version. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, that would be one thing if he left it there, but notice verse 21, if you will, because then he clearly states where your treasure is, that is, if it's on this earth, that is where your heart will be. If your treasures are in heaven, then that's where your heart will be, okay? I think too many of our hearts are here in this world, and James warns us. Notice what he says here in James 4.4. 4. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God. Did you ever think about it that way? What did James mean by that? It means that our total affection must be placed on Jesus. It must be placed on God. I think there's, I read it somewhere that we are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That beginning helps us to focus on eternity in the here and now. Yes, I am not saying that we should uh, neglect our personal responsibilities here on this earth. We have responsibilities. But every responsibility I have here on this earth must be governed by the idea that I am a child of God, that I am part of the kingdom of God, and that eternity is my final home. Everything we do must be governed by that. So now let's begin to answer the question that, J that Peter poses to us in verse 11. 
Therefore, since these things will be dissolved, what things everything, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and in godliness? Let's stop there. We are talking about Christians who are separate from the world and being sanctified by Christ. We are talking about individuals that God has taken out of this world and placed into the kingdom of God for His purposes, and that because He loves us too much to leave us the way He found us, He is working in us, He is conforming us and bringing us back into that image of Jesus Christ. So what type of persons ought we to be? And when Peter talks about living... How shall we live? How shall we conduct ourselves? He is talking about a word that is in the present tense indicating that these qualities are to be constantly present in the light of the Lord's return. We know God's coming back. We know the new heavens and the new earth are on our horizon. How then should we live today? That is the emphasis that Peter is making. That is the question that Peter is posing to you and I today. And it all begins with us as individuals first. I believe that we have been given verses through the Bible, this New Testament specifically, that should govern our thinking as we walk through this earth that allows us then to place everything therefore under that principle in its proper priority. And two of those verses begin in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This must be our mindset if we are going to live with an eternal mindset. Where Paul, after writing in his incredibly theologically rich book of Romans, stated this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's what God desires. That we present ourselves a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Number one. We must see ourselves as living sacrifices before the Lord. That is contained in the prayer, not my will, but your will be done. We must not see Christianity in an ends, uh, in a means to an end to provide for us all the things that we want here and now. So many American Christians have reduced Jesus Okay, They have reduced Jesus either to a cosmic butler to weigh on them hand and foot or to a a cosmic therapist in who they go to when things aren't going well so that they can feel better in the moment but have no real desire to submit to his lordship. They have no real desire to say, not my will, but your will be done. They have no desire for... The, the concept of denying themselves, taking up their cross, and following after him. They have no desire for those things. They're more consumed about material possessions, where they live, what they drive, what they wear. And God says, listen, all that's going to end. It's all going to come to an end. 
I mean, it started early with me with my parents. I prayed for my first, I, I, was, I prayed as a little kid, I didn't know God at the time, but I prayed, I said, Lord, I'd love a pair of Nikes. I would love a pair of Nikes. So my mom and dad were, went to the store to, to buy us shoes, and they came back, and my mom was all excited because they had come back from Kmart. She was always really happy when she got back from Kmart for some reason, okay? And she bought me a new pair of gym shoes, and I thought, for sure, it's going to be those Nikes. I'm going to look so good walking down the hallway at, at junior high, you know? I'm going to look awesome. I'm going to be the coolest 12-year-old ever. And then she pulled them out of the bag. And then she opened the box. She bought, <laughs> I can't even believe this. She bought me gym shoes by Wilson Sporting Goods. I didn't even know they made shoes. Okay, I'm not even sure they did. Okay. And then, of course, the colors she picked out, she thought was awesome. They were black with orange trim. I said, Mom, you bought me pumpkin shoes. I'm not going to be cool at 12. I'm going to be killed at 12 for wearing these. We invest so much attention into material things because we believe our identity is derived from these things. We believe that these things constitute who we are. But as Christians, our identity is in Christ. Notice with me in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Look at what Paul says. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, who you from God, and you are not your own? Underline that. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Okay? You belong to God. He bought and paid for you, all right? Paul said it this way, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. This must be our mindset if we are going to live appropriately here in this moment. All right, for you who are married with me today, our marriages are not all about ourselves. Do you realize that? So many people enter into marriage with all of these expectations. And when those expectations aren't met because no one could meet those expectations, they were so lofty to begin with, the marriage fails. People are disappointed. But we as Christians, our marriages are so much more. Do you realize that? Our marriages are so much more and must be treated as such. Paul said in Ephesians 5, 32 and 33, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular show love, uh, so love his own wife as himself, and let the, the wife see that she respects her husband. But what Paul is saying there in the context of the passage is that your marriage is meant to be a demonstration of Jesus Christ and our relation to, to him as a Christian. The husband represents Christ. The wife represents the Christian. It's a meant to be a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You got married as Christians for God's glory. Okay? We got married 
as Christians for God's glory. Well, I got married before I got saved, and then we got saved. Well, God now wants you to live your marriage for His glory. For His glory. That's what our marriages are all about. And if we, if we don't see that, we're going to keep our marriage confined in this temporal frame of just meeting certain expectations and self-needs, and we find that it is self-centered rather than God-centered, the marriages are going to have a very difficult time. I love when people tell me that I believe that marriage is a 50-50 partnership. I said, I'm, uh, it's, I'm sad to hear you say that. Well, you don't think it's a 50-50 partnership? No, I, I don't think that at all. I think the Bible tells me as, as the husband I should give 100% to my wife. And I think the Bible tells me that my wife should give 100% of herself to me. And that way we're not receiving 50, we're receiving 100% within our marriage. Our marriages are so much more to God than just simply fulfilling our temporal needs here and now. And if those marriages lead to children, if those marriages lead to children, I want to speak to the parents and grandparents here today for a moment. We have such an awesome responsibility with the blessing of children that God has given us. And let me say that again. God blesses us with children. It is a blessing to have children. But it's also a responsibility. It is our responsibility as parents to train up our children in the ways of the Lord. It is our responsibility as parents to disciple our children, to pray for them every single day, to help them read the Word of God, to help them grow and come to the knowledge of God, that saving faith. I had a parent years ago tell me that came to this church and said, listen, you know, I've said this before, exactly what I'm saying now, and, I, and he re- rebuttaled and he said, listen, that's why I bring them to church, so you can disciple them, so you can share the gospel with them. I'm delegating that responsibility to you, and I said, well, you're a fool for doing so. You're a fool for this reason. I have them one hour a week. You have them 24-7 at home. It is your job as a Christian parent to disciple your children. We just want to come alongside of you and help you in that endeavor. But the most important thing that we can do for our kids, and let me tell you what's not the most important thing, to make sure that they have all the material possessions that they want, to make sure that they have the latest iPhone or iPad or the, you know, they have this home with this certain address and a certain amount of money, that they have all the latest things. Hey, I, I had Wilson gym shoes. I survived. I'm walking with the Lord today. Okay, Don't be dependent on material things. The most important thing that we can help and instill to our children is their love of Jesus. Raising them up, helping them see the Lord. As the Proverbs state in Proverbs 22.6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That word train means to be an example to them. What do your kids see in your life? 
And what they see, that witness, is it drawing them to Christ or is it repelling them from Christ? Hey, that's a big thing to think about, right? You're like, man, I, when I became a parent, I didn't sign up for this. All right, well, put on your big boy pants and let's go. Because this is what God has asked us to do. This is what God has asked us to do. And fathers, I want to speak to you for a moment. It's not all your wife's responsibility. It is not your wife's responsibility solely for their discipleship, their discipline, and their education. You too must be involved in this process. Well, I work all day. I make the money. That's good. That's your job. But it's also your job to come home and to minister to your children. Okay? The most successful homeschool scenarios I have seen in my life is that when the father and the mother are working together to educate and to train up that child. That's where I've seen the most fruit. That's what I've seen to be the most successful. But when the mother feels like it, she's in it alone, and dad just comes home from work, tired after a long day, and then just sits down in the Barco lounger, turns on the television... Okay? That's not helpful. That is not helpful. And why do I say that? Notice what Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, 4. And you fathers, not moms, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonishment of the Lord. That's what it says. Dads, it's our job. It's our job to monitor the spiritual health of our family. It's our job to come alongside them and to help our children know the Lord. Do you pray with your children every day? Every night before they go to bed? Do you take time to read the Word with them? When you're reading in your personal devotions, I hope you're having personal devotions, do you let your kids come in and sit with you and watch you read or read out loud to them? Dads, they need you more now than ever. We have ample evidence that shows that a fatherless home is the beginning of all kinds of problems. And a fatherless home can also be a home with a father who is not present. In Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8, notice what is written here. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Constantly be talking about the Lord, the good and the bad. I am going to tell you something that I wish somebody would have told me earlier. You know, I think all of us are very protective of our children, and rightfully so. But sometimes I think our children need to know when we are going through difficulties, because then they can pray with us, they can look at it objectively, and of course, this is age-sensitive. You know, I, I don't think you need to go to your four-year-old and say, listen, uh, we're bankrupt and we don't have any money, and she runs, he or she runs to her Monopoly game and says, here's 10 bucks, you know. I, I think we need to be age-sensitive, but I think we should have our kids praying with us. That way, when God works, they remember it. When they see God provide, they remember it. They see it. Hey, God provided for my mom and dad, so God will provide for me. When they get married, hey, my mom and dad prayed about those things, so we're going to pray about them today in their family. What a way to go. But notice, 
that when it comes to ourselves, when it comes to our marriage, when it comes to our children as grandparents, your primary job biblically is to spoil your grandkids as much as you possibly can, to fill them up with sugar and then send them home, okay? I think I read that in the Eric Standard version somewhere, okay? That is a great thing. Enjoy your grandkids. They are a blessing. Remember, your children now are experiencing everything that they thought that they would never experience, having children of their own. But you can still be a light to them. My grandma and grandfather were huge lights to me, planting seeds, telling me about the Lord. When my grandfather got saved after being Catholic his whole life, he got saved and started going to Moody. I would watch him sit up. He had this big chair in his bedroom, and he would sit up there and read his Bible. And I go, Grandpa, Grandpa, what are you doing? The Cubs are on. We, he goes, I'm almost done reading. I go, what book are you reading that's so important? He goes, I'm reading about the Lord. I'm reading about God, so don't, don't interrupt me or the Cubs are going to lose. That's what he would say. <laughs> yeah. That's what he said. Yeah, they did, but... Because I interrupted them. <laughs> My grandma and grandpa were huge. My grandma was Catholic her whole life, until later on in her life, I should say. And she would tell me about Jesus all the time. They had a picture behind their couch of Jesus knocking on a door without a handle on it. And she told me the gospel and all of that. My grandma was awesome. You guys would have loved my grandma. Not only did she teach me all about the Lord and take me to my first Easter Sunday church service, but she also taught me how to play back blackjack and poker for Las Vegas night the following Tuesday. Okay? <laughs> I mean, those, I had those uh, older folks just so fooled. I'd smile with my little smile and my bow tie, and I'd take them for every penny they had, okay? Grandparents, you can be a huge influence on your grandkids, even from a distance, praying for them, showing the love of Jesus Christ to them. And I say all of this, guys, because he is asking us in verse 11, notice with me again, what manner of persons ought you to be? We need to be a person about the will of God. We need to show that in our marriage. We need to show that in our parenting. We need to live full on for Jesus until he comes. We shouldn't just sit back and say it's all lost. No, we've got to be active. We've got to be involved. We've got to be present. These are just a few of the things. But notice with me that he goes on to say in verse 14 and 15, which we didn't read initially, he says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, also addressing how we should be now, he says, Be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blemish. The peace of God is one of the greatest promises we have as Christians. A peace that surpasses all understanding is provided for us to help guard our hearts and mind as we walk through this world. But we cannot obtain the peace of God until we have first obtain peace with God. Okay? To offer the peace of God to someone who doesn't know God, doesn't know Jesus, is kind of futile because they need to have peace with God before they can have the peace of God. Peter assumes that the peace of God with God has already been established. Now he talks about the peace of God. As Jesus told us in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. 
My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your heart be let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Oh, how often do we need to hear those words? Or in John 16:33, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, that's for sure, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. Or what about when Paul writes in Philippians 4, 6, and 7? He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer. That is the, that's how we access the peace of God, prayer. That's how we tap into it. It's through prayer. I have noticed that people who have weak prayer lives often have very weak peace in their life. People who have strong prayer lives often have strong peace that surpasses all understanding. He says, let you, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Yeah, he wants us to be at peace. And once we establish peace with God through Jesus Christ, coming to know him and are saved by him, we then can tap into the peace of God to help us live eternally, to help us to become that living sacrifice, to help us to understand that we are the temple of the living God, to help us understand that our marriage is meant to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ, to help us in our parenting. That peace is so necessary in every aspect of our living here and now today. But he also says something else. He says, without spot or blemish. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And here's a Bible study tidbit for you that you can capitalize for your on for within your own Bible reading. When Peter makes a statement such as without spot or blemish, the very first thing I do to truly help me understand what Peter is writing is to find out if he ever talked about that in anywhere else in that letter or another letter that he may have written. And I do that with Paul, I do that with Jude, I do that with John, etc. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, I think that he talks about what it means to be without spot or blemish. Now, these are terms that were used for the sacrificial animals that were brought before the Lord. Of course, ultimately, Jesus was claimed to be without spot or blemish. But what do they mean by that? Well, a blemish is something that they were born with. A defect that would have eliminated that animal to be sacrificed on behalf of the person. A spot could be something that has occurred to that animal after they were born. They ran through a, a thicket or something, became scratched or injured, or they had um, some other type of injury that would prevent them from being offered onto God. So what he is saying here, that being without blemish as Christians, the only way we can do that is to be in Christ, okay? Because we're born into sin. And the only way that sin can be alleviated and, and eliminated is through the blood of Jesus Christ. So we have to be saved, number one. But then as we go through this world, we have to be aware and conscientiously aware of what God says is sin, and if we, if we enter into that sin, we need to be repentive of that sin, okay? So notice what he says here in verse 13. 
Therefore, gird up your loins of your mind and be sober. Now, we don't talk like this anymore, and I'm quite thankful for that. That, you know, I'm sorry, have you girded up your loins today? Well, that's kind of a private question, you know. Do you know what it actually means? It actually means prepare your mind. Prepare your mind. Girding up the loins could be one preparing themselves to enter into public and enter into the day. It can also refer to one who may have to travel quickly, girding themselves up and their loins to prepare them to travel at a fast pace. They had to lift up their robe to do so in a certain way. Preparing your mind. How do we prepare our mind properly? By having an eternal perspective. Be sober. Look at things objectively. Look at things objectively. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ, the return of Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lusts as in your ignorance, living the way you lived prior to coming to Christ. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Speaking of God. And if you call on the Father who, is, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. What type of fear? Reverent fear. Respectful fear of knowing who God was. Why? Verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed or paid for or bought with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by the traditions from your father, but with the precious blood. This is what was spilled. This is what was spent that you may be his. That is his blood. As a lamb without blemish and without spot, referring to Christ. He was foreordained before the foundations of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Please, really meditate and digest this section of Scripture, because I believe that is exactly what Peter is referring to here in chapter 3 when he talks about being without spot or blemish. And what did Paul say? He mentions Paul later on here in chapter 3, the difficult things that Paul wrote to us in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Hear these words. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, those who practice sex outside the confines of marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. These are individuals who practice these things continuously, whose life are are a demonstration of these things and are characterized by these things. Notice what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you. You were that. But you've now been washed. You have been sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. That's not who you are anymore. 
You're a brand new creation in Christ. Now live it. Live like it. Show the light that is in you to the dark world around you. Why? Notice with me in 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12 again. In verse 12, very interesting statement that Peter makes here. Looking for, that is the return of Jesus Christ, and hastening His coming. And hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. We used to say it this way in the 80s. Hey, pay no mind to it. It's all going to burn in the end, right? We had that mindset, not that we didn't have needs and we didn't have cares and that we, weren't, we didn't require some of the things of this world. It was basically to say, hey, we want to live full on for Jesus Christ and we don't want to get ensnared in these things. We want to be radical. We want to be just as radical, if not more so, than those people who I think are from another, country, another uh, planet up in Green Bay who wear cheese on their head when they go to a football game, okay? That's perfectly acceptable. But if I live full on for Jesus Christ, for some reason I'm radical for doing so? I know there's some big Packer fans here, so just pray for me. The Bears won this week, so I know we're going to the Super Bowl because we have one win now. Okay? But notice with me, what did Peter mean by this hastening? Well, notice with me, on the screen behind me, Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 21. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Not just the immediate presence, because we've been brought into the presence of God through Christ, but His physical presence. Peter saw that they wanted to get the gospel out to everyone in hopes that that would spur the immediate return of Jesus Christ. That was their heart. That was their mindset. And that He may send Jesus who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of His holy prophets since the world began. His mindset was this. Let's get the gospel out to everybody in hopes of a sooner than later return of Jesus Christ. So His physical presence, the righteousness that He will bring, the new heavens and earth that will follow, will come sooner than later. So lastly, as a believer in Jesus Christ, in the last days we must be about sharing the gospel with everyone who will listen. We must. Guys, we cannot neglect this. We cannot neglect it. I guarantee you, that there is an appointment waiting for each and every one of you with a person who needs to hear the gospel from someone just like you. Someone who may never receive it from me may listen to you. I prayed for my mom and dad for 35 years. I witnessed to them. We would take three steps forward, two steps back. We'd take one step forward, ten steps back. It was just so difficult. And I kept praying and kept praying and kept praying. 
And I finally said to myself, they're not going to receive it from me because they remember the guy way back when. Okay, they remember the, uh, the guy running around the uh, neighborhood getting into trouble. Okay, they remember this little punk that used to just, you know, do things that I won't even talk about now because no intelligence was required for some of the things that I did. Okay, and yet... When it came to my mom, one Sunday afternoon while she was in the hospital, we were eating lunch at home, and Dina was just provoked in her spirit. The Holy Spirit just gently speaking to her heart, you need to go and share with Eric's mom. So Dina went. She just dropped her lunch. She says, you know, I can't even finish this. I need to go talk to your mom right now. She dropped her lunch. She said, please pray for me. And I did as I ate her sandwich and her pickle. (laughs) You know, I can't let the food go to waste. That would be terrible. And one hour passed, two hours passed, three hours passed, four hours passed. Now it's getting into the evening and visiting hours are coming to an end. And still Dina is not home. Finally, she rolls in about 8.30 at night. She left at about 1. And she walked in and she said, I said, well, how did it go with my mom? She said, oh, it went great. She said, yeah, I led her to Christ and we had a Bible study. Really? You went one time? I've been doing it for 35 years. Okay, you think that's fun? All right. My dad and I would go back and forth. See, both of my parents were very intelligent people. You know, I was adopted, so I can't, I can't say they passed it on. Though I did get my dad's hairline, okay, somehow. So then came my dad. We would go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he would just object to everything that I would say constantly. And it was just, it was just, it was so hard. I'd have great moments with him, and then all of a sudden he'd push back. And then one day at Christmas, I said, I'm not going to say a word. And all of a sudden, my dad announced at the table that, oh, you know what? I've been reading the Bible, and it's the only thing that seems to make sense. Really? Really? You know, I've been trying to tell you that for 20 years, you know. And then, after he made that proclamation, then I would try to talk to him again. Oh, the door is almost open. And yet he's resistant, and how can Jesus be the only way, and so forth. But Paul's conversion was intriguing to him. How could he go from Jew to, to a Christian? How could he do all that? But it was up and down, up and down. It was just one of those things, okay? Well, in the last week of my dad's life, we are going to the hospital. I go to the hospital hoping for one more opportunity to lead him to Jesus. And he was sound asleep. He couldn't even regain consciousness. So I just prayed over him. I said, Lord, whatever you need to do, please save him before he dies. Then two days later, my wife goes. And as soon as she walked in, he apparently woke up. Now I'm starting to think maybe he was faking it when I went. And my sister was there. And Dina started talking to him, started sharing the gospel with him and said, Dad, I love you and I want to see you in heaven. Are you finally ready to commit your life to Jesus Christ? 
And he said yes. And they prayed together, received Christ. They did a little Bible study together. And they concluded, the last thing my dad did before once again slipping into unconsciousness was singing the song with my wife, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The next day he died. The next day he died. Now it couldn't have been me. And I'm convinced God loves my wife more than me. I'm convinced of that. Okay? You know, it's, it's difficult in our marriage when you think God favors one over the other. Okay? I won't take it personally, God. But how many more stories are, are like that yet to happen? Through you. Through you. Through you. Through you. God is waiting to connect you with people that need to hear the gospel. This world is dying and perishing and falling away. And he has us here for a time such as this. So lastly, as a believer, what person, what manner of life shall we be? Looking at ourselves first and then trying to get the gospel out to everyone who will listen. Amen?